BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Good day, good friends. Good to see you and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. You know, over the years, veteran political reporters in Washington have seen uh, just about everything. Little can surprise them. But even the most jaundiced reporters have been surprised by the cascade of reports that have been published by the great investigative reporting team at ProPublica about all the freebies that Clarence Thomas has been raking in for years from his billionaire buddy, Dallas developer Harlan Crow. Thomas and his wife Ginny sucked it all up. Trips on private jets, cruises on luxury yachts, vacations in first-class resorts around the world, on top of which Crow even bought and refurbished Thomas's mother's home and paid private school tuition for Thomas's grandnephew. And here's the worst part. None of that was reported by Thomas on his annual financial disclosure forms because, unlike all other federal judges, the Supreme Court has no mandatory ethical guidelines. So the big question is, If the court won't voluntarily adopt a code of ethics, can Congress impose one on members of the court? Well, for answers to that and a whole lot more, we turn today once again to Norm Ornstein, Emeritus Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and America's leading congressional scholar. Norm Ornstein, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. It's always good to talk to you. It's always great to talk to you too, Bill. Thank you so much. Norm, we thought we knew Clarence Thomas, um, but we've learned a lot about Clarence Thomas in the last week or so. Um, Maybe the image we had before the latest revelations, go back to, um, I want to play you a quick clip from PBS. This is a documentary that was done on Clarence Thomas that aired on PBS on May 18, 2020, Clarence Thomas saying, Oh, shucks, I'm just an ordinary guy. Here he is. I prefer seeing the regular parts of the United States. I prefer going across the rural areas. I prefer the RV parks. I prefer the Walmart parking lots to the beaches and things like that. There's something normal to me about it. I come from regular stock, and I prefer that. I prefer being around that. (laughs) It's a good thing he wasn't under oath. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think the Walmart parking lot was something that he saw with uh, um, Harlan Crow, correct? Well, he might have seen it while flying over it in the private jet. Uh, uh, well, is there any defense possible, in your opinion, for Clarence Thomas to accept that all these freebies, not to mention, right, all the travel and then his mother's house? the tuition for his grandnephew, to accept all of that from anybody without reporting it? Keep in mind, Bill, that there's parts of this that are not new. Go back to 2011. After we had learned 
that Ginny Thomas had earned very, very large sums of money from the Heritage Foundation that Clarence Thomas did not include in his financial disclosure reports, which he was supposed to do. And he went back and amended all of those returns. In the process of amending those returns, he was acknowledging that he had done wrong that he had not followed the letter of the disclosure requirements, much less the spirit of the disclosure requirements. So when you look at things that have happened since, this is a guy who's been caught with his hand up beyond his elbow in the cookie jar, who takes his hand out and goes and puts back whatever cookies he's been able to uh, find that he hasn't already consumed, and then goes right back in head first into the cookie jar. So there are no excuses here. And when Clarence Thomas says, well, I consulted with my colleagues and a few others, it is beyond laughable. Now, if we can, if we put all of this together, there are, uh, obviously we're not including one other element uh, that should definitely be right at the forefront of this, which is that Thomas has never once recused himself for mm -hmm. any of the actions that involved his wife as a right-wing activist, and most egregiously, when she was herself knee-deep in the violent insurrection, the planning going into it, and uh, it, it, even in its aftermath, when a case came before the court that was directly related to her own involvement, potentially release of documents and information, he did not recuse himself. So this is a man, I would say clearly, without an ethical compass. But beyond that, it gets much worse. When you look at not just these trips, and we know that there are exceptions for personal hospitality. Personal hospitality means you go and you stay with a friend at a house or even at a, a vacation property. They do not include lavish travel, much less travel on a private jet, which includes not just traveling to the yacht of your benefactor, but being able to use the jet for your own personal purposes. The failure to disclose all of that violates every single standard of what we would expect from a judge at any level, much less the Supreme Court. Now, I want to mention one other thing, and then I want to step back with a little bit of a caveat. We know now that Thomas disclosed a $5,000 contribution from another friend of his for the tuition or help for his nephew. He did not disclose the $150,000 from Harlan Crow. Now, hmm. what that tells me is he knew that this was supposed to be disclosed. He right. knew disclosing $150,000 from a billionaire was going to be viewed very badly. So he covered it up. He hid it. Then when you look at all of the other elements here, and that includes, of course, the money going to Ginny Thomas. When you consider that Harlan Crow as a benefactor to pay for the nephew's tuition in private schools wasn't going to a guy 
trying to struggle on the pretty nice salary of a Supreme Court justice, but somebody whose wife was pulling in hundreds of thousands of dollars. He was a plenty wealthy guy himself. You have to say it stinks to high heaven. Is there any code of ethics at all that applies to the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court must comply, members of the court must comply with? No, is the answer. And, you know, to elaborate further, there is an official code of conduct for federal judges created by the Judicial Conference of the United States. We might note that mm -hmm. John Roberts, the Chief Justice, chairs the Judicial Conference, and <laughs> it has yeah. all kinds of requirements in a code. If somebody violates it, it is a direct violation of a code that they've all agreed to uh, abide by. But it has not applied to the Supreme Court. And in 2011, yet again, uh, an interesting time, John Roberts as Chief Justice uh, wrote an apologia saying it was absolutely unnecessary for the Supreme Court to have to abide by that code, that of course they were going to do it anyhow, and there were special circumstances for Supreme Court justices. And we can look at Clarence Thomas, we can look at Neil Gorsuch having a property in Colorado that he couldn't sell for two years. And then suddenly, magically, days after uh, he's on the Supreme Court, it sells for a nice price to a law firm with tons of cases before the Supreme Court. We could look at Brett Kavanaugh, who still has not adequately in any way answered the fact that he had hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt that magically disappeared before he went on the Supreme Court. But if we're going to point fingers, the first finger gets pointed at John Roberts. This is the Roberts court. He's let all this happen. He has yet to say a single word about this level of misconduct, which calls into serious question the credibility and honesty of the Supreme Court. That's how the Roberts court is going to uh, be known from now on. And the heaviest burden falls not just on Clarence Thomas, but right on John Roberts. And, you know, there was, a, I guess, the, the, what most people in Washington believed, that John Roberts is someone who cares about the court, who cares about the reputation of the court. Um, apparently not, right? I don't think he cares enough. I think he has other priorities. Hmm. I do That's think simple. that for a long time, including in some of the decisions, including what he led that kept the Affordable Care Act from being completely obliterated. He did with an understanding that if this Supreme Court threw out the Affordable Care Act, it would be disastrous for the court. We see it in, we know the compromise he tried to work out on abortion, uh, which is uh, why uh, I believe the Dobbs decision was leaked, and contrary to Sam Alito, who, with all of this, I would still view as the worst justice on the court, uh, claimed without any evidence came from somebody on the left, but which logically came from somebody trying to keep the Roberts compromise from going anywhere. So we know Roberts has some concern about the reputation of the Roberts court, but the bottom line is he is not going to do anything that goes after 
one of his justices, especially one of his justices on the right. And we have to add here, Bill, much as it pains me to say that when uh, Dick Durbin, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, asked Roberts to come and testify about the ethics issues on the court, and he refused, that he sent a letter that had been signed by all nine justices, all right. of them, yep. uh, about how, you know, not to worry, we take care of our own ethics. So there's a uh, an old, uh, you can't call it an old boy network anymore, but there is a desire that transcends all these other issues by all the members of the court, I think a recognition that their legitimacy rests on a reputation and they're trying to close ranks to preserve it. But the fact is what they're doing is destroying it. Yep. All nine justices, and Norm, you and I know, there are a lot of nine to nothing decisions for the court, but they're all on minor technical issues. This is a unanimous decision on a huge issue and every one of the nine signed that statement, um, which uh, uh, appalled me, uh, as it did you. Is there any way to fix this? Can Congress do anything? Can the Judicial Conference of the United States do anything? Can the Attorney General do anything? Actually, the Attorney General could. I doubt that he will. There is a very strong case to be made that at least some of the things that Clarence Thomas did or didn't do violate the law. We don't know even, for example, what gifts he got that maybe should have been uh, disclosed on tax returns. We know that the failure to file uh, some of these disclosure forms violates some provisions of law. I am highly skeptical that uh, Attorney General Garland is going to indict Clarence Thomas, but there are actions that can be taken. Norm. You mentioned the uh, Judicial Conference of the United States. I did, getting ready for today, talking to you today, looked up the federal judicial guidelines that, that do apply to all judges except the Supreme yeah. Court. And it clearly says, one who knowingly and willfully falsifies or fails to file or report any information required under the act is subject to civil and criminal sanctions. Looks like yeah. that's a green light for Merrick Garland. I think it is. Um, but as I said, I'm skeptical that it'll do it. And, you know, I can see this is a tough call because the right would go nuts. And I, you know, one of the things that's striking to me too, Bill, is watching the hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee, not a single Republican, not one, said anything that was a recognition that there ought to be standards here and that maybe we should at least consider a code, much less offer any criticism of Clarence Thomas. And that, to me, is also a recognition of where we are as a country and where the Republicans are as a party. When Abe Fortas was caught, basically, you know, having taken money, a much smaller sum of money from a benefactor, Democrats and Republicans united to say, this is not appropriate. You need to leave the court. Not a single Republican in the House or Senate has said anything other than this is a high-tech lynching, yet again, as Ted Cruz has said, or 
there's nobody better than Clarence Thomas. And the House Republican Judiciary Committee said he is the greatest of all time. This is just a tragic loss of any moral core in a political party and on the Supreme Court. You know, I, 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 just as I've been reflecting on this bill, I had a very dear friend for many decades named Bob Katzman. Bob was uh, put on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals by Bill Clinton, became the chief judge of the Second Circuit. I would say as well-respected as any judge in America, died uh, tragically of pancreatic cancer uh, not too long ago. But I was up in New York maybe three years ago uh, and had lunch with Bob. And we, you know, we went to an inexpensive place and I picked up the tab and he said, no, no, I can't let you do that. I said, Bob, please, I know the rules. We've been friends for decades. This fits well within uh, the ethical standards of the court. And it's a trivial sum of money. And besides, I don't have to live on a judge's salary in Manhattan. So please. So he relented. A week later, I get a check in the mail for $25, which covers uh, the meal from Bob with a little note saying, I apologize, but I just, I'm not going to let anybody, no matter the circumstances, buy me a wow. meal because that's what he was such a stickler for propriety. Now, I'll go back even further. Decades ago, my wife, clerk for a judge in D.C., and he got a nicely bound Bible from a nonprofit religious group to which he had spoken, and he went to his clerk, my not-then-wife, Judy Harris, and said, please research this, find out how much the Bible costs so I can send a check back to them. That's yeah. what judges do going to crazy extremes because they care about the propriety, the standards that a judge is supposed to uphold. Nobody is going to make it look like they have been given something that might create a bias. And if you look at those judges, and I believe they fit the norm for most judges, and compare and contrast that to Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, and especially Clarence Thomas. It's just amazing. Amazing and sad. Sad for this country. Sad, sad, sad for the court. Our guest again today on the Bill Press Pod, Norm Ornstein from the American Enterprise Institute, an emeritus scholar uh, and a good friend and one who's been uh, watching Congress for many years and knows it better than anybody else that I know. But I want to ask you, Norm, now something not related to Congress, but uh, related to the media, and that is by the time that uh, this podcast will will be heard, uh, people may be tuning in to CNN for a big town hall up in New Hampshire with Donald Trump, who has been basically declared war on CNN for the last seven years, as we know, calling them fake, fake news and the enemy of the American people. Norm, why is CNN giving Donald Trump an hour of prime time? That is a very good question, Bill. I would guess I would frame it this way. CNN's approach to this is we are an unbiased news network. Donald Trump is the front runner for the Republican nomination. 
and we are going to do a town hall with most candidates and we will start with the front runner. My reaction to that is no, that's not how this is supposed to work. I don't care if he's the front runner. He is unique in American history. The only president in American history who lost an election and tried to overthrow the government to reinstate himself in power illegitimately through a violent insurrection. This is a president who is more corrupt than any president in the history of the country. He is the first president under criminal indictment with almost certainly many more indictments to come. He is the first president to face a trial, even if it's a civil one, on rape with many women testifying about the way in which he approached them that makes him more reminiscent of Bill Cosby than it does of any previous president that we've had. This is a president who is a grifter, a former president who is a grifter, who ripped off taxpayers for millions of dollars while he was president, among other things, charging wildly inflated rates for Secret Service protection. While people were trying to protect him, he was charging taxpayers crazy amounts for their hotel rooms and for the golf carts that they needed to follow him around on the golf course to protect him. This is somebody who violated the emoluments clauses of the Constitution, including the domestic and foreign emoluments clauses, lying while he kept title to the hotel in the District of Columbia that he, uh, where he had signed papers saying he would sell it if he ever held any office, holding it illicitly while foreigners paid wildly outrageous sums to be in that hotel. And as soon as he left office and left the hotel, they stopped going. So yeah. we've got all of those things. Now, do you legitimize that by giving him free airtime in what is likely to be more of a wet kiss to him than a tough, unrelenting examination? especially since it's a town hall where the audience is going to be Republican primary voters and some independents. Right. No, don't. And the fact is, and it goes beyond Donald Trump, it also goes to 60 Minutes giving this showcase, which itself was a big wet kiss, to Marjorie Taylor Greene, a purveyor of racism, bile, and conspiracy theories with almost no pushback. It is that Airtime on Sunday talk shows, on cable news networks, on network shows, to anybody who is a political figure is giving them legitimacy. And you do not give that legitimacy to somebody who does not deserve legitimacy. You can cover him, of course. You could even do a tough interview, but a town hall at this stage, while he's under indictment, when we're awaiting a verdict on rape and defamation, I wish it were not happening. Isn't this, in fact, uh, a repeat of exactly what CNN did in 2016 and 2015 when Donald Trump was a candidate 
and they covered every one of his rallies. Didn't cover the other candidates, covered every one of Donald Trump's rallies from cover to cover, beginning to end. Jeff Zucker, having put him on the air, of course, on NBC before that for 14 years as host of The Apprentice. I mean, in, in many ways, CNN made Donald Trump president of the United States. Uh, I would say that's exactly right. And, you know, there's one image that just sticks out for me from that more than any other. On the day that Trump got the final delegate to put him over the uh, mark where he was going to win a nomination, which was in either North Dakota or South Dakota, CNN had the empty podium, the microphone on air for an outrageous amount of time waiting (laughs) for him to come for a meaningless event while at the same time, Hillary Clinton was doing a substantive meeting on an important issue facing Americans that wasn't covered at all. And you're absolutely right. All cable networks, because it was good for ratings, covered his rallies, covered everything that he did, and uh, didn't cover the other Republican candidates, which enabled him uh, to get a boost in winning a nomination to begin with, but also gave him an awful lot of help to winning an election. And if CNN changed after that, uh, it took quite a while because, you know, after he got elected, they would bring in uh, as regulars, extremely high paid regulars, lick spittles to Trump like uh, uh, Jeffrey Lord and Corey Lewandowski and Kaylee McEnany. And uh, then showed some toughness, and the new CNN wants to rebel against that, show that they are uh, neutral, and being neutral uh, in this time and place means taking sides. And it's, there, you know, I understand the desire and, and appreciate the desire to change CNN in a, you know, time when It's very hard if you have an MSNBC on one side, a Fox on the other, to develop an identity. And having the identity that harks back to the original days when CNN was the go-to source for news, uh, not for the commentary, not for having a Democratic strategist and a Republican strategist screaming at each other, or not for having nine people on a stage to try and represent every (laughs) single viewpoint. You know, creating a new CNN that goes back to old values, I'm all for that. This is not the way to go, in my view. Norm Ornstein, our guest from the uh, American Enterprise Institute. Norm, a couple of other issues uh, happening this week, other things in the news I'd love to ask you about. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and uh, uh, just wrap up with a couple of other Uh, items that uh, I think uh, we need to talk about and love to get your take on. We'll be right back. And today's podcast with Norm Ornstein brought to you by the Iron Workers Union, the good men and women of the Iron Workers. They say their motto, the sky's the limit, and boy, it sure is. Think of all the iconic structures in this country, almost all of them built by iron workers from the Golden Gate Bridge to the Gateway Arch in St. Louis, to the new World Trade Center towers in Manhattan, all under President Eric Dean. We salute the members of the Iron Workers Union, thank them for their great work building America, and thank them for their support 
of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. back on today's podcast, our guest, Norm Ornstein, Emeritus Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and America's leading uh, congressional scholar and expert. So, Norm, the Congress now is, um, they're on the precipice of letting the United States default, not pay our bills, go into financial crisis. This has happened year after year after year, except, of course, when Republicans are in the White House. Um, how do you view this debt ceiling crisis? Is it a crisis? Do you think they'll work it out? Is this just brinksmanship? How do you read it? I'm scared to death, Bill. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, back in October, before the midterm elections, I wrote a piece in The Atlantic basically saying, watch out if Republicans take the House, uh, that we're going to very possibly have a default. Uh, and in the uh, aftermath of the election during the lame duck session, I had conversations with people in the White House, uh, with people in the Senate, uh, in which I begged them to take action to head this off. And what I wanted them to do was to institute something ironically known as the McConnell Rule. Uh, because it's what we did when we came close in 2011 as a one-time thing. And that was basically, fundamentally, the president raises the debt ceiling unilaterally. Congress could block it with a joint resolution. A joint resolution can be vetoed. And fundamentally, it means that all the president needs is one-third plus one of either house, and you're not going to have a debt ceiling crisis again. Mm -hmm. A better way is just to repeal the whole notion that there is a debt ceiling, since uh, the Constitution flat out says, no, there isn't. But there are other ways around it, and they didn't do it. Now, I saw two things happening. One is they had an excuse, and the excuse was the Republicans in the Senate will not cooperate. We can only do this through reconciliation. It's not clear the parliamentarian would go along, but in any event, 
we don't have 50 votes. Why don't they have 50 votes? Guess which two. Go ahead, Bill. Which two wouldn't go along? Joe Manchin is one. Yeah. And Kirsten Cinema. At the same time, you know, they, they talked about the parliamentarian because it's not clear, you know, in the narrowest sense that this kind of a fix to the debt ceiling would fit under the rules of reconciliation. My argument to them was, to those in the Senate, was, okay, parliamentarian happens to be a pretty reasonable person overall. Go to her and uh, with a delegation of senators and say, you know, we've got two possibilities here. One is that you look at this and, and you know, uh, nitpicking, you find that this just doesn't quite fit under the rules of reconciliation. And we have a default and it leads to a global depression. The other is that, and of course, if that happens, people are going to know why. Mm-hmm. Now, the other is that somehow you can find a way to make it work. I have a feeling she would find a way to make it work, but it didn't matter if they didn't have the votes. And the fact is that Mitch McConnell, who could have made something like this happen, who back then, publicly at least a couple of times, said that he was a little concerned about this, wouldn't lift a finger to help or to make it happen. So they didn't get it done. But the other thing about this is I just did not see any sense of urgency among Democrats in the White House or the House or the Senate. The attitude was either, it's unthinkable, of course that's not going to happen, or, you know what, let them do that, and then they'll get blamed for it. Now, that wasn't a common attitude, but there was at least Mm -hmm. some of that in an underlying way, and it shouldn't have been, and it's truly unfortunate that we didn't get out of this. Now, I'd mention a couple of analogies here. 2011, we know, we came right to the brink. It was the Tea Party group that had come in in the 2010 midterm elections. They had been egged on by the young guns, Kevin McCarthy, Paul Ryan, Eric Cantor. They pushed this, and it was John Boehner who stepped in and saved us, and Mitch McConnell, who came up with this McConnell rule, from going over the cliff. But we also know that because we'd come close, the bond rating of the United States was downgraded, interest rates went up, it cost taxpayers probably $19 billion over the next decade as a consequence of just coming close. Now, that was the Tea Party movement. In 2011, Bill, there was no Freedom Caucus. There was a right-wing caucus. The Tea Party people almost all belonged, as most House Republicans did at that point. It's called the Republican Study Committee. 2015. John Boehner, of course, was toast because in part of what he had done to keep us from defaulting. But 2015, the Freedom Caucus was formed because the right-wing caucus Mm -hmm. wasn't right-wing enough. And the Freedom Caucus people make the Tea Party people look like moderates. They want to go over the cliff, many of them. And Kevin McCarthy is the weakest speaker ever on the tightest leash we have ever seen. This is not a guy who's going to give up his speakership to save the country. And I'm fearful. Now, is it possible we could find a way out of this? Yeah. House Democrats have their fallback. They've done it very cleverly to create at least the possibility of a discharge petition where 218 members of the House can force a vote on a clean debt ceiling bill, and they won't have to go through the long delays that are otherwise built into the rules. It's still going to require them getting five Republicans. 
any five Republicans who go along with that are going to be subject to death threats, excommunication, and primary challenges. So I'm highly skeptical that that will occur. If it does, it will only be after we've defaulted and the crisis has taken place. And the long-term consequences of that are going to be enormous. And then, you know, we can't leave this topic, Bill, without noting that the way the mainstream media are covering this issue is it's both sides. It's why isn't Biden negotiating? Uh, it's yeah. Neither yeah. side is willing to negotiate. And so for many of the Republicans, there is this sense that if we do have a catastrophe, it's more likely to be blamed on Biden because people see him as running the country and they may benefit politically. Far too many of them are willing to pay a price of economic catastrophe to get a little bit of an edge politically. Well, I hope your pessimism is misplaced. Oh, please make me wrong. Please let me be wrong. I'm not sure of that. I'm not going to be the one who says it's all going to work out because I'm worried as well. Uh, finally, Norm, I just want to close by coming back, circling back to something that you said a little earlier, and that is to look at the Republican Party today. And here you have Donald Trump, who the only president, and you went through the whole list, and the only president who's been impeached twice, a president who has been indicted from criminal charges in New York, a president who has been accused of rape. With all of that going on, the Republican Party seems to be accepting the inevitability that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee. I want to read you a quick quote from George Conway, right? George Conway tweeted today, someone with Trump's character would not be granted a security clearance at any level of government. We wouldn't let the man babysit our children or even walk the dog. We would definitely not buy a used car from the guy, but we might give him back the nuclear codes. What does that tell you about the Republican Party today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we know from surveys that most Republicans, or at least a majority of Republicans, prefer an election denier as the nominee to somebody who says, actually, we lost in 2020. Let's try and come back in 2024. We know yeah. that this is Donald Trump's party now. It is not by any of the standards that we would have ever used in the past, a legitimate political party, but it is also one of only two major parties that we have. And with everything else going on, Donald Trump is clearly and obviously the front runner. Things can change, including very possibly uh, he would have to accept a nomination from prison <laughs> or maybe serve from there if he won. We also know that he has said that his main goal, if he's reelected, is retribution. Yep. He wants to get back at all of those who have challenged him, who have undermined him, who have criticized him. We would have a bloodbath. We know that mixed in with the apparatchiks and incompetence that he put into his administration in his term as president were at least a few people who tried from time to time, or sometimes even more than that, to be reasonable administrators uh, and actors in governance. None of them would be a part of a second Trump term. They would all be thugs and apparatchiks. And that, of course, would include the attorney general. It would include uh, the uh, head of Homeland Security. It would include the director of national intelligence. We know that nothing would make Vladimir Putin or uh, MBS or any of the other vicious dictators around the world 
happier than to have Donald Trump back in the White House, and nothing would distress our allies, including Ukraine, NATO, Australia, and other countries more than having somebody who has proven to be a traitor to America's constitution and values back in the White House. And with all of that, he's the front runner to win a nomination. And we shouldn't leave without also mentioning the potentially pernicious role of no labels. Mm -hmm. If they follow through and pick somebody who is you know, sort of a centrist in some respects or respectable, that that could be the Jill Stein effect, the Ralph Nader effect, uh, and tilt the election, even if a majority of Americans don't really want it that way. So we have uh, tumultuous times ahead, Bill. Oh, boy. And with that warning, Norm, <laughs> with that, we'll take a break and look for some good news, all right, <laughs> that we can talk about the next time. Norm Ornstein, it's always good to catch up with you. Thank you so much for all your good work. Uh, and thanks for joining us again on the Bill Press Pod. Anytime. And that's it. Uh, a very candid uh, and sometimes depressing look at America today with our good friend Norm Ornstein. By the way, back for his fifth visit to the uh, Bill Press Pod, which must be some kind of a record. Uh, thank you again to Norm, and thank you all for listening. And we look forward to seeing you again on Friday for our Reporters Roundtable. A lot to talk about this week. The big summit meeting at the White House on the debt ceiling between President Biden and the four leading members of Congress from both parties and Donald Trump's town hall on CNN Wednesday night. We'll talk about all of that and a whole lot more on Friday with three of Washington's leading political reporters for Reporters Roundtable. Have a great week, folks. Come back and see us on Friday for the next edition of the Pill Press Pod.